is Our American Stories. Winston Churchill, who, by the way, is portrayed brilliantly by Gary Oldman in Darkest Hour. See it if you get a chance. Churchill made 16 visits to America in his lifetime. He traveled here as a soldier, a tourist, and a lecturer. But the late Prime Minister's visit to America in 1941 as a wartime leader was by far his most important. And the speech he gave on December 26, 1941 may have been his most important too, though certainly not as well known as his Iron Curtain speech in 1946 in Fulton, Missouri. And by the way, we did a terrific segment on that, and you can hear Winston give that speech. We love doing that here on this show. The story of that trip back in the winter of 1941 is worth telling. It revealed a lot about not just Churchill's status as a great leader and a great statesman, but as a great salesman, and an indefatigable one, too. The day after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, Churchill, who had just turned 67, packed his bags and headed straight for the United States. It would be the most important sales trip of his life, and perhaps the most important sale of the 20th century. The stakes for his home country and the world could not have been higher. Quote, With the fall of France, Britain stood alone decisively inferior in military power to the Nazis, explained Dr. Larry Arne in a speech delivered at Hillsdale College in Michigan. The only thing that could save it was the English Channel and ultimately the entry into the war of the United States. Nobody understood that stark reality better than Churchill. It was why he was on a boat crossing the Atlantic so soon after one of America's darkest hours. His plan was simple. Strengthen relations with President Roosevelt, Congress, and the American people, and prepare them for the exigencies of an extended and difficult war. It was a long trip of ten days through cold, storm-tossed seas. It was a dangerous one, too. U-boats filled the Atlantic. There were serious concerns about Churchill's safety, but Churchill was not deterred. The work ahead was too important, and that work could not be done through phone. Churchill's boat docked in Norfolk, Virginia, just two weeks after the attack on Pearl Harbor. He immediately flew 140 miles north to National Airport in Washington, D.C., where Roosevelt greeted him. Churchill spent the next few days at the White House as a house guest a self-invited house guest, no less, doing what he did best, talking, drinking, smoking, and keeping Roosevelt up until the wee hours in the morning. Eleanor Roosevelt said of Churchill, quote, It was astonishing to me that anyone could smoke so much and drink so much and keep perfectly well. Having successfully bonded with Roosevelt and having mapped out some important wartime planning, Churchill moved on to an equally important objective, bonding with the U.S. Congress and the American public, and selling them on the importance and the inevitability of a combined American and England to combat the Axis powers. For days on end, Churchill worked on his big speech, honing and crafting it in ways only he could. One thing Churchill knew for sure as he was preparing was this, without the American people on his side, his home country was lost. He began the greatest sale of his life to a joint session of Congress 
with these words. Members of the Senate and of the House of Representatives of the United States, I feel greatly honored that you should have invited me to enter the United States Senate chamber and address the representatives of both branches of Congress. The fact that my American forebears have for so many generations played their part in the life of the United States, and that here I am, an Englishman, welcomed in your midst, makes this experience one of the most moving and thrilling in my life, which is already long and has not been entirely uneventful. I, I, wish, I wish indeed that my mother, whose uh, memory I cherish across the veil of years, could have been here to see. Churchill then made clear our countries were connected by much more than a common language. I may confess, however, that I do not feel quite like a fish out of water in a legislative assembly where English is spoken. I'm a child of the House of Commons. I was brought up in my father's house to believe in democracy, trust the people. That was his message. I used to see him cheered at meetings and in the streets by crowds of working men way back in those aristocratic Victorian days when, as the Israelis said, the world was for the few and for the very few. Therefore, I have been in full harmony all my life with the tides which have flowed on both sides of the Atlantic against privilege and monopoly, and I have steered confidently towards the Gettysburg ideal of government of the people, by the people, for the people. What words, what words. I have been in full harmony all my life with the tides which have flowed on both sides of the Atlantic against privilege and monopoly, and I have steered confidently towards the Gettysburg ideal of government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And when we come back, you're going to hear the rest of this remarkable speech, every word of it written by Churchill himself, delivered like only Churchill could. The sale of the century, the most important sale of Churchill's life, of perhaps Western civilization's life as we know it. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we return to Churchill's joint session of Congress speech the day after Christmas in 1941. Churchill next addressed our very best angels, more certain about the true nature and character of America than many of its own leaders. I should like to say, first of all, how much I have been impressed and encouraged by the breadth of view and sense of proportion which I have found in all quarters over here to which I've had access. Anyone who did not understand the size and solidarity of the foundations of the United States might easily have expected to find an excited, disturbed, self-centered atmosphere with all minds fixed upon the novel, startling, and painful episodes of sudden war as they hit America. After all, the United States have been attacked and set upon by three most powerfully armed dictator states, the greatest military power in Europe, the greatest military power in Asia, Japan, Germany, and Italy have all declared and are making war upon you. And a quarrel is open which can only end in their overthrow or yours. But here in Washington, in these memorable days, I have found an Olympian fortitude which far from being based upon complacency is only the mask of an inflexible purpose and the proof of a sure, well-grounded confidence in the final outcome. (laughs) We in Britain had the same feeling in our darkest days. We too were sure that in the end, all would be well. This was not merely a call to arms. It was a spiritual affirmation of all that was good in America and in his home country. The speech then took a tough turn as Churchill walked Congress and the American people through the difficulties of the task ahead. He understood intuitively his audience could handle what he was about to tell them and that they would rise to the challenge. You do not, I am certain, underrate the severity of the ordeal to which you and we have still to be subjected. The forces ranged against us are enormous. They are bitter, they are ruthless. The wicked men and and their factions who have launched their peoples on the path of war and conquest know that they will be called to terrible account if they cannot beat down by force of arms the peoples they have assailed. They will stop at nothing. They have a vast accumulation of war weapons of all kinds. They have highly trained and disciplined armies, navies, and air services. They have plans and designs which have long been contrived and matured. They will stop at nothing that violence or treachery can suggest. It is quite true that on our side, Our resources in manpower and materials are far greater than theirs. 
but only a portion of your resources are as yet mobilized and developed. And we both of us have much to learn in the cruel art of war. We have therefore without doubt a time of tribulation before us. In this same time, some ground will be lost, which it will be hard and costly to regain. Many disappointments and unpleasant surprises await us. Many of them will afflict us before the full marshalling of our latent and total power can be accomplished. Churchill wasn't finished talking about the rough path ahead, and he invoked scripture to close out this critical part of his speech. No one knew better than Churchill that there was indeed a great spiritual battle ahead, and he wasn't afraid to define it in those stark terms. Some people may be startled or momentarily depressed when, like your president, I speak of a long and a hard war. Our peoples would rather know the truth, somber though it be. And after all, when we are doing the noblest work in the world, not only defending our hearths and homes, but the cause of freedom in every land, the question of whether deliverance comes in 1942 or 1943 or 1944 falls into its proper place in the grand proportions of human history. (coughs) Sure I am that this day, now we are the masters of our fate, that the task which has been set us is not above our strength, that its pangs and toils are not beyond our endurance. As long as we have faith, in our cause and uh, an unconquerable willpower, salvation will not be denied us. In the words of the psalmist, he shall not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. Churchill then closed out his speech to the American people and to Congress by invoking the spiritual dimension of the battle One last time, and the common belief in such things the two great allies, England and America, shared. If you will allow me to use other language, I will say that he must indeed have a a blind soul who cannot see that some great purpose and design is being worked out here below, of which we have the honor to be the faithful servant. It is not given to us to peer into the mysteries of the future. Still I avow my hope and faith, sure and inviolate, that in the days to come, the British and American peoples will for their own safety and for the good of all walk together in majesty, in justice and in peace. And with those final words, the members of Congress roared with approval, as you're hearing. 
It went on for over a minute. Churchill responded the flashing V victory sign that would become his signature gesture. On New Year's Day, Roosevelt and Churchill visited nearby Mount Vernon to lay a wreath on the tomb of our nation's first president and one of our great warriors, George Washington. Soon thereafter, they met with diplomats from several allied countries to sign a joint declaration to fight the Axis powers. None, they agreed, would negotiate a separate peace. On January 14, 1942, after nearly a month away from his home, the 67-year-old Churchill left for war-torn London with one of his greatest victories. Quote, His visit to the United States has marked a turning point of the war, a Times of London editorial opined upon Churchill's return. No praise can be too high for the farsightedness and promptness of the decision to make it. You know, David McCullough once said that when people are in history and they're studying history, nothing had to happen the way it happened. And that in the end, decisions are made and great men step up. And without it, the world is different. And Churchill, my goodness, what a life lived. What a speech. The greatest sale of the century. I'm going to close with a reading from Dr. Larry Arne's great book, Churchill's Trial. And here's the quote. Churchill had made a speech about the American Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Magna Carta, the documents that mattered and changed the world. All this means, Churchill said, was that people of any country have the right and should have the power by constitutional action, by free, unfettered elections with secret ballots to choose or change the character or form of government under which they dwell, that freedom of speech and thought should reign, that courts of justice, independent of the executive, unbiased by any party, should administer laws which have received the broad assent of large majorities or are consecrated by time and custom. Here, here are the title deeds of freedom which should live in every cottage home. Here is the message of the British and American peoples to mankind. Let us preach what we practice and let us practice what we preach. This is Our American Stories. Churchill's Greatest Sale. And we continue with our American stories. And up next, the story of Richard Montanez. Originally from Mexico, Richard's family moved to California where he grew up doing manual labor. His whole life had been spent below the poverty line. But one day, well, everything changed when he got a job as a janitor. And of all places, Frito-Lay. Faith brings us the rest of the story. Richard Montanez wrote a book titled A Boy, a Burrito, and a Cookie. From janitor to executive, Montanez was working as a janitor for Frito-Lay in the 80s. But now, he is worth millions. In his book, he talks about how fear is what holds most people back. His success did not come from his great education or from who he knew. 
In fact, he doesn't have a formal education at all. This is the story of how a man went from a janitor to a millionaire. What was life like growing up for Richard Montanez? I was a, a young boy during the civil rights movement of the 60s. Now, what I like to tell people is that I wasn't old enough to have an impact on the movement, but I was old enough that the movement had an impact on me. And here's how the story goes. We're in a one-room one apartment, and my mom's getting me ready for school because I was being bused from my school to an all-English-speaking school across town. And I remember I'm crying because I don't want to go to school. My mom says, why not? And I said, because everybody speaks English. You know, it's not fair. People forget is that, you know, during my days, there were no bilingual classes. If, if, if you wanted your license, you needed to know English. It was, it, was, it was pretty difficult. It was different. It was really different. And um, so my uncle takes me to the corner, and uh, here comes the yellow bus. And then there goes the yellow bus. So I'm kind of happy and telling my uncle, I guess they're not going to stop for us. There was about 10 of us waiting. Then all of a sudden we hear this big pop and bang and we see this green bus coming up the hill smoking and um, that's the bus that uh, they sent for us. And I remember I told my uncle, it's just like it happened yesterday. That's why I say sometimes you got to go back, you know, so you can catch some of those wisdom and some of the things that happened to you. So. Uh, I'm telling my uncle, why can't I ride the yellow bus like the other kids? And he has no explanation. I don't know. This is the bus that they sent for you. It wasn't until I was an adult that I finally realized why they sent that green bus. And it was society at the time saying that this group of children, this group of 10, they're not good enough to ride the yellow bus. Let's put them on a green bus, parade them across town so that the whole town can see that because of who they are, they're not good enough to ride. And, and as, a, as a young boy, that, uh, I took that on because you have to understand, I didn't know what diversity was. I didn't know what discrimination was. I didn't know what race was. But one thing that I did know, and I knew my color. So for me, it was like, oh, dark skin is kind of like a second class citizen. That's all I knew. So, oh. Okay, so I began to take that on. I'm not good enough for the yellow bus. So we get to school. I don't understand the word the teacher's saying, uh, but I always said this, that there's one sound that's international, that every child knows that sound. That is the recess or the lunch bell. It was uh, lunchtime, so it was all a relief. And, you know, my group, we got our lunches, and, you know, we sat outside, and uh, I pulled my lunch out. And I was getting ready to take a bite, and I put it back. I put it back because everybody in that whole uh, playground was staring at me. And the reason they were staring at me because it was a burrito. And what people need to understand that this was 1963, the world hadn't seen a burrito yet. You know, contrary to popular belief, Taco Bell didn't introduce the burrito to the world, me and my mom did. But the fact is, I was embarrassed. So I went home and I told my mom in Spanish, I said, you know, make me a bologna sandwich and a cupcake like the other kids because I don't want to be different. And I told my mom, why do I have to ride the green bus? Why do I have to be this color? Why do I have to speak this language? Why do I have to eat this food? I want to fit in like everyone else. But my mom, I've always said she's a marketing genius. She said, no, this is who you are. And that was Wednesday when I was bused to that school. So Wednesday was my burrito nightmare. Thursday, she made me two burritos. So I went to school, shared a burrito with a friend on Thursday. Friday, I was selling burritos for 25 cents a piece. 
that's when I realized that even at a young age that, you know what, maybe, just maybe there is something special about different, being different. And I finally realized that none of us were created to fit in. We were all created to stand out. And I think that's what we need to teach our young people is quit trying to fit in because it's never going to happen because you weren't created to fit in. You were created to stand out. So for me, that became a revelation that led to a revolution of my life. I knew that, okay, I'm different, but it's okay. And uh, I really started to fall in love with my culture and who I was. His mom had an impact on how he saw himself. She refused to let him be ashamed of his culture, whether that be the color of his skin or his food. But there are other people in his family that impacted him as well, especially when it came to work ethic, even when it meant the type of janitor he would be at Frito-Lay. So, you know, my mentors were my dad and uh, my grandfather. Now, they didn't mentor me in, you know, academics or how to write a check. They had no bank accounts. But they mentored me in how to work hard, how to be the first one, uh, never to be on time, to be early. You know, I'd never been late. You know, I have this thing. I'd, ra I'd rather be, you know, an hour early than five minutes late. Well, I, I gained that from them, but I didn't realize also another thing that that would separate me. Because when I, when I was first hired as a janitor, um, I remember I went and told my grandfather and my dad at the same time, and both of them said, when you mop that floor, you make sure that it shines, that people will know that a Montanez mopped it. Then my dad said, you listen to your grandfather. When, that, when you mop that floor, let people know that a Montanez. So I took that on. I really believed that, you know, uh, in my heart, I was going to be the best janitor that Frito-Lay ever had. I, I took out the trash. I mopped the floors. But I saw that I had an influence as a janitor. People were smiling. Because they'd walk into the break room and it smelled fresh. They'd walk, something like, well, I can make people smile just by working hard. And, and I remember, because uh, there's always the doubters, you know, and I like to tell young people, you know, stay away from the haters, you know. And people said, well, what do you do? I said, I'm the janitor. Said, oh, you're, the, you're just the janitor? And I said, you know what? There's no such thing as just a janitor. There's no such thing as just a waiter. There's no such thing as a, there's no such thing as just when you believe in your heart that you're going to be the best. And I believed in my heart. And people were taking that. And I, that floor shine, you know. And, uh, and, I, and, I, and I've said this before. You know, there, there's so many statements out there that are incorrect. And, and one of them is I'd like to correct. And the statement is that uh, you get promoted by who you know. And that's not true. You get pr promoted by who knows you. Who knows of you. Who knows your work ethics. Who knows that they can trust you. You, you could say you know the CEO of the company, but if he doesn't know you, you'll never get that opportunity. See, I didn't realize that. I was just being me. I just want, I was just happy. I just wanted, you know, everything that I could get out of life in my area. So when the time did come when they were having problems, you know, I, I started to learn uh, my whole industry, uh, whether it was my job or not. You know, I, I would uh, hang out with the, the guy that ran the machines. I would hang out with the guy that, that cooked the product, and I'd say, teach me this, and I was just having fun. And you've been listening to Richard Martinez and his story, and what a story it is, and what a lucky man he was and is to have a dad and a granddad who taught him to work hard and that no job was beneath any man. The dignity of work, well, it speaks for itself. 
Make sure people know Amantanez mopped that floor and make that floor shine. And the pride of work, my goodness, it reminds me of the great street sweeper speech by Martin Luther King. By the way, we did an entire segment on it. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Type Martin Luther King and street sweeper speech. When we come back, more of this remarkable voice, Richard Montanez, his story, his family story, and overcoming obstacles here on Our American Story. Turn to our American stories, and we've been listening to the story of Richard Montanez, who went from janitor to millionaire. And let's return to Faith and the rest of this story. Montanez was both curious and a hard worker. Why was it that he was never afraid? Even as a child, he was taking chances. A lot of it was being naive. A lot of it was not knowing the play rules. You know, if you don't know the you just play the way you think you can. But, uh, you know, every Tuesday they had uh, after-school reading programs. And uh, one was here for the Latino kids and one for the non-Latino. So you, you, I would get in every Tuesday in the line that I was told to get in. And uh, one day I broke ranks and I got in the white line. And you should have seen my own line, intentionally or unintentionally. They were saying, Ricardo, Tas loco. Richard, you're crazy. This is our line. And when I got in this line, I was really... Uh, I had a lot of fear because all the white kids turned around and was like, hey, you, you know, they were saying what they were taught. Their line's over there. Nothing, nothing me, just like, hey, you know, you're in the wrong line. Kind of, fr- you know, how kids do it. And then I thought, well, you know what? I wonder if I can pass for being white. There was two beautiful ladies up there in the trailer. I remember blonde, blue eyes. And I kept thinking, are they going to notice that I'm not white? And really, I had, I had a fear that was unbelievable. But I had something inside of me that was greater than that fear. And when my friends were saying, what are you doing? I, I just looked at them and I whispered in a loud way, said, they have cookies inside. I'm going to get us some cookies. And the truth is, why did I get in that line? Why did I? Because sometimes you got to break ranks. You got to get out of that line you were told to get in. Because I was hungry. And I knew they had, that's all. I just wanted a cookie. I was hungry. And as much fear as I had, my hunger was greater than my fear. And that's why I tell people today, if you're hungry for that promotion, if you're hungry for that degree, if you're hungry to run for an office, fear will leave. And when I got up there, guess what those two ladies did? They filled my pockets with cookies. Now, there's two morals of that story. One is hunger is the antidote to fear. If you're hungry, you'll never fear again. The other part of that story is that Everyone needs to understand, and I mean everyone, needs to understand that there's a cookie that's been baked just for you. Your job is to get out of that line that you were told to get into and get into the cookie line. For many of us, it means to get out of the uneducated line into the educated, the poverty line into the prosperity line. And uh, that's why I tell you, that's why uh, my success has been beyond my wildest dreams. I really didn't know any better. All I had was I'm hungry. 
Though how did he become an executive? By the mid-1980s, Frito-Lay was struggling. As a way to boost morale, then-CEO Roger Enrico recorded a video message and disseminated it to the company's 300,000 employees. Um, he, he told everyone there across the country, actually across the world, 300, I think 300,000 plus employees at the time, um, we want all of you to act like owners. And you got to understand, that was such a bold statement because that was during when corporate America was a command and control. Corporate America had not yet heard the word empowerment, let alone individuals. So he was basically saying, I empower you to act like an owner. Here's another thought for me was, wow, is he telling the truth? Is he, is, he's inviting the janitor to act like an owner. And so many people just, it just went, I said, don't you, didn't you hear what he just said? He said, we could all act like owners. So I, I went into action. I started, you know, researching my company. And, and then I asked the salesman if I could go with him on a weekend. I said, I'll load your truck up. So I went to the stores with him and I loaded the Frito-Lay products and just had a great learning the business, whatever I could. And I always say, you know, all you need is, as I said it earlier, all you need is one revelation. One revelation will lead to a revolution in your life. And what is a revelation? It's simply this. It's something that was there all along. It's just been unveiled. I was looking, and this was many, many years ago, and I saw it. I saw And here's what I saw. I saw no products that were catering to Latinos or to the person who loves spices. It's all pretty much, you know, salt and maybe barbecue flavored. Um, no one was selling you know, spicy flavored or anything hot. So I'm like, that was it. But I remember I went home and I sat in our, on our porch and we have the old fashioned um, um, of steps, you know, concrete. So I'm sitting there and in my neighborhood, in a lot of Latino neighborhoods like mine that I grew up in, we have something that is called the uh, Elote Man. It's a vendor, it's a corn, called the Corn Man. And he sells uh, uh, corn on a stick and he puts mayonnaise, butter, cheese, however you want it, lime, chili. And uh, remember I whistled and I said, let me have two, you know, one for my son here. And I said, yeah, with everything, of course. So I'm eating and I'm thinking, what could I do? What could I create? And then I looked at that and it looked just like a Cheeto. And it's just like, like that, the, what if I put chili on a Cheeto? So I went to work, you know, and I actually made up my own seasoning, you know, that and put it on an unseasoned Cheeto. My wife took some to work. I took some to work. and. Everybody fell in love with it, and you know, next thing you know, I, I, I called the CEO. Richard Montanez, the janitor, called the CEO of Frito-Lay. So I knew that I was different because of my burrito day. I also had courage because I was hungry for my cookie day. So being innovative and full of courage, plus I was naive, I didn't know you weren't supposed to call the CEO, Well, you know. Let's find out if he's telling the truth. So I call up and his uh, executive assistant was just that. She was an executive assistant because she saw it right away. And she started saying, what division do you, do you run? Because he's a CEO, only another president or vice president would call him. And I said, no, I work in California. Like, the general manager of California? No, I work at the Rancho Cucamonga plant. She's like, you're the plant director? I said, no. She goes, what are you? I'm the janitor. So hang on. CEO gets on. You know, 10 minutes later, he says, uh, I'll be there in two weeks. And uh, hung up the phone. And like I've always said, you know, uh, there's always somebody in the room that'll 
steal your, try to steal your, well, here comes the plan. See, I had really didn't know what I'd done. Montanez had crossed a social boundary that his plant manager saw as unacceptable. Here he comes, and he's so upset, and I don't understand what he's upset. He just says, do you realize what you've done? The CEO, he's coming, and he's bringing everybody with him to hear you. He goes, you do the presentation. I've never done a presentation. I wouldn't even know where to start. Uh, but I remember, you know, um, I'm married to a brilliant woman. You know, I've, I've always said that, you know, every, when you're in trouble, you know, go to the wife, go to the mom, go to the grandma. The woman has the answer. At the time when he was told he had to give the presentation, he was 26 and barely knew how to read or write. In fact, his wife filled out the application for Frito-Lay. And then again, his wife helped him put together his marketing plan. After bumbling through the presentation, the CEO stood up and said, put the mop away, you are coming with us. Six months later, Flamin' Hot Cheetos were being tested in small Latino markets in East Los Angeles. If things didn't work out, Montanez would be back mopping the floor. After some test runs in 1992, Flamin' Hot Cheetos were nationally released. Today, Flamin' Hot Cheetos are one of Frito-Lay's hottest selling commodities, a multi-billion dollar snack. Over a 35-year career, Richard Montanez, the former janitor, rose through the ranks and he is now the vice president of multicultural sales for PepsiCo America, the holding company of Frito-Lay. But more than that, Montanez has chosen to give back to the community with scholarships, food drives, and clothing drives. He never wants to forget where he came from. He still lives in Rancho Cucamonga with his family, where they serve the community together. Well, you know, when, when, when we have an event, again, what makes me proud is that it's, it's my three sons, uh, five grandkids, my wife, two daughter-in-laws, and a handful of friends. And 5,000 people show up at my events. We typically, we feed everybody lunch. We have a big stage, we have a sound system, we have a warehouse full of toys. We, I mean, um, we give every family a box of groceries. And what I'm proud about is that, because again, I know what it is to be hungry. The box of groceries is enough groceries to feed a family of four for a week. So when you open my groceries, there's not going to be a, a can that has no label on it. Said, I've said this, if it's not good enough for my kids, then I'm not going to give it to those kids. It's got to be just as, if sometimes even better. So when we're on stage and my grandkids, uh, that's our legacy, is I know when I look in the mirror that my success is for a reason. And that reason, it, with success comes a responsibility. And that responsibility is to your fellow man. And how, you know, I, I tell people, other people who've been financially successful, how big does your house have to be before you give back? But again, I think other executives, other people who've been very, very fortunate need to understand. And, and I think a lot of them are coming around. They realize when they look at their bank account, there's a reason there's, there's that much in there is, you know, part of it is to give it away. I'm Faith Buchanan, and this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always, Faith. And what a story. And we've been listening to Richard Montanez. One revelation, he said, can lead to a revolution. And what a revolution. Fear, he kept on saying, holds most people back. And it's so true. Richard Montanez's story, 
here on Our American Stories. And if you know a Richard Montanez story near you, and they're all over this country, I love that he said that most success doesn't come from family connections because it's so true in this country. It's a bunch of rubbish. And the fact of the matter is anyone can make it in this country. And Richard's life story is testament to that. Again, Richard Martinez's story, and we're looking for stories like it. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between and we love hearing stories from you send them to us at ouramericannetwork.org some of our very best have come from our listeners and we love to tell stories about great acts of charity and generosity and from people of every walk of life from every walk of life and now you're about to hear one of those stories. The holidays are supposed to be a time of love and cheer. But as we all know, things don't always happen the way they should. Especially not for the 14,000 children in Michigan placed in foster care. We start in June. We finalize the whole deal the first full weekend in December. That's Mike Papilla. And for his day job, He's the Global Logistics Manager for Guardian Industries, a subsidiary of Coke Industries. And his night job, well, to about half the state of Michigan's foster care population, he's a Santa of sorts, spending about seven months to make sure that the foster kids across Michigan would have a less lonely Christmas. 6,774 children or 20,322 gifts personalized gifts were delivered to children in Michigan. We've been doing this for 47 years. This project, Operation Good Cheer, started in 1971. And about 30 years ago, while Mike was working for GM, he decided to give Operation Good Cheer a hand when it consisted of only one truck that delivered to only a few foster homes. What perked my, like I say, what perked my interest, it, I never thought there was that many needy children in Michigan. And I'm surprised at the time, it wasn't that many children, at least at the time 30 years ago, I didn't think. Okay, and as I kept getting more involved each year, it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I'm going, I can't, I couldn't imagine the problem in Michigan being that big, that, there, that we had that many children, foster care children, needy children. Then I started digging into it and I understood some of the things as a child that I, that I was raised on, you know, the holidays and things like that, they were missing, and, and I thought it was just a good cause. And now with the help of Mike's logistics expertise, they serve roughly half of the state's foster care population, a feat that not even Santa could do without the help of his elves. I bet you we have 2,000 volunteers. The majority of volunteers come out because they want to come out to help somebody. There's, there's a need... There's children in Michigan that, that are foster home children or living 
not in a not in a real home, a home that I consider a real home, not with parents that I consider parents because they don't have parents. And they have a need to bring them a little bit of joy during Christmas. So there's people out here to do it because they want to do it. They want to help them. Of the volunteers that I see, and I see them over and over, year after year, they come back. Um, we get volunteers that come up from Indiana. Um, I get a couple of volunteers that come over from Illinois. They've been doing this years, years and years back when they lived here, and they continue to come back. I get friends and family that show up year after year saying, you know, we're here to help children, and it's a need that has to be filled, and, and we need to share, and we need to give of our time to make this happen. And it, it ranges anywhere from corporate volunteers to Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts, Civil Air Patrol, retirees that come out. When you see the amount of people that volunteer and the, the size of the group and the age of the group, it's everybody and anybody. <laughs> That's right. Mike just said Civil Air Patrol. Not only does he have truck drivers amongst his ranks, but pilots too. We move the, the gifts either by airplane or by truck to agencies and airports around the state of Michigan. Coordinating 2,000 people, 250 airplanes, and 34 semi-trucks. It, it's pretty chaotic in the I'm a professional logistics person, so I'm trying to make this work on the size that we're at at this point. So it becomes a, it becomes a little chaotic, but we get everybody to work together as a team, uh, the volunteers, and uh, we get the job done. A big job for a worthy cause. Let's bring a little bit of joy to, their, to them. Let's, let's get them out of the mood of being a foster child, letting them know that somebody cares about them. There's people out there in Michigan, there's a lot of caring people in Michigan, a lot of caring companies in Michigan that want to try to make their lives better. As I explained to the group, I said, you're looking at gifts and you're looking at a bag, but every bag with three gifts in it represents a child. Treat it that way. Don't, don't drag it along the ground. Don't rip the papers. It's the way you would want to have Christmas. That's the way you'd want to get a gift from your parents. And we're sort of like just trying to fill a need in the state, and I'm and I'm sure other states in the United States have the same problem. The foster program is a great program, but maybe it just can't do everything, and we're helping it out a little bit. While Mike conducts this operation like a Christmas symphony, it's the truck drivers on delivery day who channel all of that Christmas spirit to the children in need. They get to deliver the gifts to the orphanages and see the kids. So... They're experiencing what a lot of us don't get to see every day. Okay, they're seeing the reciprocants. They're seeing the smiles. They're seeing the excitement. And they keep coming back year after year after year. They volunteer to come back on their own time, not getting paid by their trucking companies. They dress up in some way, Santa Claus, hats on. One of them brings um, his best friend along, and she becomes Mrs. Claus. Um, I got a couple of them that put lights on their trucks and put reindeer horns on their trucks and uh, red noses, um, they're carried away because they enjoy doing it. There's somebody in need and it's the time of the season to give back and share and make someone's life happy. And that's, that's all we're trying to do is help the children. And what a beautiful story. That's Mike Papia and the organization is Operation Good Cheer. Go to cfsm.org to help That's cfsm.org to help 6,700 
children who delivered personalized gifts over Christmas, 2,000 volunteers, and a caravan of planes and trucks delivering those presents. Three gifts in a bag, and they represent a child. And my goodness, as Mike said, treat those bags that way. And by the way, these are the acts of generosity that are being performed all over this country all the time. The ultimate media bias isn't a political one, folks. It's for bad news. And we're here to deliver the good news about this country, too. Mike Papia's story, Operation Good Cheers story, a Michigan story, an American story, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love bringing you stories from all over this great country, and especially from a place called Midland, Texas, which got its name from being midway between two bigger places, Fort Worth and El Paso. And our own Alex Cortez brings us our latest Midland story about one of its pastors, a man named Daryl Trout. I was very uh, lightweight as a person. So I don't know if you know about thin people when they're little, they get a little bit chips on their shoulders. So that was me. And so my brother was a football player and big and I wasn't. So I you know, kind of resented that as a child. But as I grew older, I did a little uh, motocross racing and loved the uh, adventure part of life. Bought me a street bike as I got into high school. I started getting hurt because I had no fear. You can't race if you got a lot of fear. Broke my leg and couldn't race, so my mother didn't pay the payments for me because I was out of a job. And so she was afraid I was going to get killed, so she, uh, she let me sell them to pay, the, pay them off. So I quit racing, quit riding. My uh, now wife invited me to church since I couldn't race on Sundays. I had to go do something with this cast on my leg for almost a half a year. And then I gave my heart to Christ and started preaching, so. I was a teenage alcoholic and used drugs. Yeah. I gave that up when I came to the Lord, so. I don't know if it was easy. It was simple. You keep doing this, you're gonna die. You quit doing it, you'll live. Uh, I, did I ever have a desire? I went through about 20 years of phantom alcohol taste. I could see someone pour a pitcher of beer and taste it. I never drank during those years. And then one day I woke up and went to an event where they were all drinking and I didn't want to be there and I never had a desire for it and walked out and the Lord said, you're free. So, There's a lot of years of thinking about it, not really wanting to do it. So saying it's easy, I think, uh, is a weird statement for us as human beings. I work with alcoholics and drug addicts every week. I try to train them in the different understandings of, and I know psychology has a lot of terminology, and I know the word addiction has got a lot of terminology. I think all of us have addictions, uh, but they become stronger because the more we talk about it, the more. That's why Paul said, forget those things that are behind. Concentrate on what's in front of you. My wife had a simple way to deal with my own children. 
one day, I'll never forget, it was a fall day. We had a, a little downtime on a Saturday. And we were all kind of basically relaxed in the living room. And my oldest daughter, who was about 12 at that time, just blurted out, I am so bored. And my wife simply got up, went and got a trash sack and said, go out in the front yard and pick up leaves and don't use a rake. And you won't be bored anymore. She said, I'm just, no, mom, I don't want to do that. She said, no, it's too late. I can, you got to go do this. And she forced her to go out. And our youngest daughter laughed and she said, go help her. She mocked her sister, so she got to go help. And uh, after that, we never had trouble with the word boredom. <laughs> you knew if you were bored, there's something right in front of you to do. The same way, I think, with life control problems. The more you look at the life control problem, the more you create another problem. But if you just uh, do what's in front of you and stay busy without it becoming a drudgery, um, you soon walk away from those things. Me and my wife both have either served as a volunteer teacher, a substitute teacher before they made it. You couldn't substitute unless you had enough college hours. But a neat story there was is there was a bully that was not learning well. And uh, so they invited me into a classroom setting to help him with his math. And uh, so I was in there and he would not, he kicked back in his chair, put it up on the back two legs and just stared at the ceiling. After about the third day, I'd get him engaged a little bit, and then he'd just get mad at me and just shut down. And finally one day he said, I wish you would just get out of my face. They pay you to be here, and you're only here for the paycheck. And I started laughing at him, and I said, I'm here because I volunteer. They don't pay me a dime. That kid started learning and graduated because he was blown away that someone would do something without getting paid. <laughs> and so... You know, I think that's what we're about. And they usually stuck me in ISS, in school suspension. <laughs> and I guess God knew later on I'd be working with foster children. Five years ago, Mid-Cities put out a letter. Our churches sit side by side. That said that one of the greatest needs in our area, because I'd been preaching on find the biggest needs and meet them. And they said their largest need is more children than there are foster families. And so you can't teach what you're not doing, so me and my wife felt that very important to, to start fostering. And so we got our license through High Sky. High Sky Children's Ranch is a place that helps kids who've been abused, from providing them a home at their ranch, to therapy, life skills coaching, and training and licensing foster parents like Daryl. We, uh, Honored that letter, came out, started. So far, we've uh, helped transition 13 children either back to their families or most of them were adopted. We try to foster mostly just infants. That's our goal. Because we're very busy, both of us, with me, with what I do. She's the church secretary. She also works very, very deeply with children's ministries, and she cooks a meal for different groups on Wednesday nights. So we're both very super busy, and we found that if they're school-age children, then we've got to be there at three. And when I do counseling, you know, those are my prime hours to counsel with people. So it, it's almost impossible for us to do school-age children. And then if they're also toddling in the three- and four-year-olds, they need to be in a room, but they can't be in the car with us going somewhere all the time. So, But an infant, 
you got an infant carrier, you're, you're, you're more capable of handling their situation. They're beside her when they're not in daycare, they're beside her at the desk and she takes care of their need. But we, we think we're helping because we're not going to adopt. Okay, I'm 62. I put it this way. I'm changing their diapers now. Before they get out of high school, they may be changing mine. That's not fair. <laughs> it's not fair to them to have an invalid father before they go to college. But we can maybe get this child that may not, the parents may not do what they should. Like we've had a couple that totally didn't want it, the child. And until the court removes the parental rights or restores the parental rights in several cases we've had, wouldn't it be better just to have a transition home with this infant? Because if you give this child to the couple that's going to adopt, they go a year, two years, and then the mom gets the rights restored and they take that child from this couple who thought they were adopting the child, then that couple feels like they lost their child. You've had injury and the child has injury because you've just said, you know, this is our baby. When the mom loses rights, we're going to adopt them, change the name, whatever. And you've got all these goals and now those goals are toppled. But what if we had a, a transition home? With us, we know our primary goal is we want the child to get restored to the parents. We want them to get better, get well. So we can take care of this infant, invest ourselves, love on them while we have them, and then give a healthy child back to the parents or to the new adopted parents. Why not have a home like that? So we kind of think that's us. It's not really official, but that's kind of the way we look at it. It's not official, but my goodness. Well, Daryl Trout, his bride, and the people of Midland are stepping up. And we play these stories because stuff like this happens all over this great country, and no one's telling the stories. People of faith stepping into the breach. Some people with no faith stepping into the breach. Americans are good and decent and generous people. And my goodness, our faith informs so many of us. And that's why we sometimes tell these stories. And we'll continue to. And by the way, send your stories, anything that your church, your civic organizations have done to help the needy, to help the poor, to help the least of these. Uh, this is our obligation, whether we're believers or not. We all believe this is important. And sometimes we can do this ourselves. And the government's got a lot of things on its hands, a lot of things on its plate. Sometimes, well, we just have an extra room in the house, an extra an extra set of dollars in our bank account. Daryl Trout's story, in a way, Midland, Texas's story, here on Our American Stories. More after these messages. To hear more stories like this, follow us on Facebook and go to our website at ouramericannetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter so that we could send you our best stories every week. More of Our American Stories after the break.
And we return to Midland, Texas, and to Pastor Daryl Trout, who practices what he preaches. He's actually a foster parent himself to young infants. The biggest thing we get from pastors, or anyone for that matter, that comes and walks up to me, the biggest thing they say, they can't do it because it would hurt their feelings too bad to see them go. And I think that's selfishness. Now that would be the one thing that I do tell people. Are you so selfish that you're more concerned about your emotion than you are the well-being of a child? So that would be more of a thing that I would probably say, wait a minute, you know. Most of them are with us almost a year or a year. And we've had some that have been a little more than a year. They're part of our lives. And so when they're taken away, if you want to call it that, it's hard. We had one girl that she was six when she came to us and almost eight when she left. And we cried desperately for her. I mean, our tears are, tears are part of the process. If you don't use your tears to make you continue to be invested, your emotion, if you become hard, you're no good in my opinion, in all of life. So emotion's part of the uh, reality, the genuineness of what you're doing. But we don't not do it because it hurts. We do it because they changed our lives while they were with us. And we treat them just like our own children. In fact, I told my two older daughters, and their one's near 40 and the other one's in their mid-30s, that we love these kids more than we love them, so just jokingly. But it, in a way, we've learned how to love that we didn't have when they were infants. And so it hurts, but at the same time, we bless them as they leave us. And uh, after all, my pastor, pastored for, you know, since 1981. And I've seen a lot of people go, so you got to let a lot of people go. So this isn't a whole lot of difference. <laughs> but we see this next baby come in and it's all over again. We had a child just a few weeks ago that we had for 10 months. He was eight to nine months when he came into our home and started caring for him, taking him to PWP, partnering with parents. Partnering with parents is High Sky's program to help the biological parents of a foster child to heal, become better parents, and hopefully reunite with their child. Mommy visit, mommy visit, mommy visit. When they go to mama visit, I talk about how wonderful mama is. I don't even want to know that much about mama that, that I would not like. I want to just go by Philippians 4, 8, whatever's lovely, good, and praiseworthy, put your mind on that, because I'm not the lawyer, I'm not the judge, and I'm not the CPS caseworker. So I don't have to tell that child what's wrong with mom. <laughs> I tell that child what's right with her. She's getting help. I heard that she passed a test the other day, and she can't wait to get you back. And I encourage, you know, even, I'm talking about when they start comprehending. Even when I bring an infant that has no way to communicate, I tell them how great it is to see mom. Here's your mama. She loves you. And that's my job. Even when it hurts. Even when you may not totally believe it, <laughs> you have to say it because it's the right thing. His dad doesn't want him, lives in New York. And her parents died in 2013 in New York, I guess, in an auto crash for both of them to die at the same time. I would probably perceive that's what it was. And anyway, got to know her through that. And just during the transition of her son back to her, she approached me and said, can we come to your church? And, you know, 
I, what would I say? Absolutely not. <laughs> I said, absolutely, come on. Knowing this could get complicated. This little boy calls me dad, you know. He's, now he's got his stepdad, got his mama back. And how's this going to work? So I started drilling it into him. I'm Papa now. I'm Papa now. And Jameson would go, Dad, Dad, Daddy, Daddy. And he sees me, cries, and he wants me more than his mom. So how's this going to work at church? And she's okay with that. Well, just within a few days of them coming to our church, she raised her hand to get her life right with God. And her husband, who had never attended church, he keeps telling me, I don't know what church is. Please help me. And uh, uh, he raised his hand to give his life and dedicate it to God. And so they're letting us do some discipleship in their life. And in the process of that, this little boy's mom says, I don't have parents. Would you and Rhonda be my parents? Not just would you be their son's grandparent, would you be my parents? I said, well, parents and grandparents are nosy. And I don't know if you could handle us. And she said, that's what I need with tears running down her face. So the whole thing has turned into, if you want to do a cliche, a family affair, you know? And the whole family's a part of our life now in a positive way. Now, someone recently said, could we interview them? And I said, no, let them get the help they need first. A lot of people would jump right on that and say, yeah, but they don't need more pressure, they need less. And so as they develop and grow, and if everything works well, yeah, I think they'd be a, a tremendous story. They'd, not a story, a tremendous reality for a world that's all messed up when it comes to someone who has a drug problem or an abandonment issue, or they did something terribly stupid by endangering their child. Isn't it a great reality that that person can become a great mom and that be in their past and not always thrown in their face? And so I went with her to court last week. And I was the only one in the courtroom for her. And the judge was impressed. And I was nervous. <laughs> and and I, think, I think for all of them, they need somebody to be there for them or they're not gonna change. So it's not just the foster child that needs to be changed, it's their parents. The child I have now, I was told that the mother is more concerned about her dog than her child wants to keep bringing the dog to her caseworker visits and in the beginning dropped the baby off at her mother's house on the way to get help at the CPS office and she said leave your dog with your mother to take care of. She said I trust my mom with my baby but not with my dog. And unfortunately we have that society. That, In fact if you want to make my missionary daughter angry who lives in a remote part of an Islamic Republic she said when she comes home from where she lives in this rough part of the world and sees the more commercials on adopt a pet than she sees for adopt a child, it angers her amazingly. <laughs> she is not a happy camper when it comes to what she sees when she's gone for, she is gone for four years at a time with my three grandkids. <laughs> and her and her husband come home every four years for one year. It's just sad to see that you care more about your dog and your cat than your child. I said to Pastor Daryl, you must be proud of your daughter. And here was his unusual response. You said, I must be very proud of my daughter. I never have used that word with my children. When I read scripture, you don't hear the father say, I'm proud of you. 
in scripture it says, I'm well pleased because you obeyed. And so I use the term, I'm so well pleased with you because there's too many places in scripture where he says, I resist the proud and I give grace to the humble. And so I didn't want him to be confused, even though it has a double meaning, I did not want him to be confused what that word means. But I believe humility is everywhere if you receive it. It's understanding you can't do it and you need help getting it done. So that's why I'm with highest guy. I couldn't possibly go do anything with these children if I don't have a relationship with these beautiful people. To learn more about the High Sky Children's Ranch helping abuse children, go to highsky.org. And I love that he quoted that part of Scripture from Paul, where Paul invokes us all to forget what is behind us and to concentrate on what's ahead. Because it's so true, and that's for all of us in all of our relationships. He said tears are a part of the process, but if you become hard, you're no good. Emotion is a part of this, the genuineness of it. And that one little line, I don't have parents... Would you be my parents? We know that sentiment echoes across this country, across the world. So if you can be a parent, if you've got the resources, and I don't, you don't have to be rich to be a parent. If you've got an extra room in your house, churches, get to it. America, get to it. Because as Pastor Trout said, what a tremendous reality we are offering up in a world so messed up. More of Daryl Trout's story Midland, Texas's story, and America's story. We're a generous nation. Here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now the final portion of Daryl Trout's remarkable story, the pastor who's also a foster parent and has one heck of a story and voice. The one elementary school child that we have fostered, she kept coming home with math and having trouble with even just 5 plus 5 equals 10. No matter how many times I said it, she couldn't get it. And so my wife was working with her one day, and she finally just broke down, started crying. My wife looked at her and said, sweetie, it's not that big a deal. And just put her in her lap and started loving on her. And I stepped over there and said, can I help her right now? And she said, sure. And so we put her back in the chair, put the paper in front of her. And I said, what number is this? She said, well, it's a five. And I said, what number is this? She said, it's another five. And how much together do they make? And she goes, I don't know. And I stopped and I said, I pulled a chair over and I said, what's that? She says, the chair. I said, your problem is with math, you think it changes every day. It doesn't. I said, tomorrow, what will this be? She said, a chair. I said, what's this? She said, it's a table. And I kept asking her, what's this? And she finally got mad. She said, it's a table. I said, somewhere somebody told you math is hard. And it's just like this table. It's the same tomorrow. So five plus five today equals 10. 5 plus 5 tomorrow equals 10. It doesn't change just because it's on a different piece of paper. She never had trouble with math after that. And it's just, I don't know. You do that with each child. You don't treat, I don't even treat my own two daughters the same. One of them, to discipline her, go to your room. She loved being with everybody. The other one loved being in her room by herself. 
So to punish her, you can't be in your room, you gotta be in here with us. So you gotta, you can't do everything the same for everybody. And I think that's what laws try to do. This kid had this problem, therefore let's make a law about it and let's do this, you know, for everybody. And you're like, wait a minute. Every situation is unique and has the complexities that vary from one way to another. And you have to back off of who you are just a minute to catch who they are. And that's how you help people. And that's what Jesus did. That's what he did with the woman at the well. That's what he did with his own disciples. He didn't take all of them to the Mount of Transfiguration. He just took three. You don't think the other nine were ticked off? How come they always get to go with you? <laughs> I wonder what those stories were like, you know? We'll deal with it. I took those three, not y'all, because I didn't want y'all up there. And even when he got up there, Peter wants to build a shrine, you know, and go worship it. And he goes, you don't even know why you're here. You know, basically Jesus rebuked him. You don't need to build a shrine here. You're here because when you're standing on Solomon Colonnade after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, you're going to preach and 3,000 people are going to come to Christ. The next time you preach, 5,000. Next time, 7,000. And then after that, it just said multitudes. So he's teaching Peter. He's teaching John. You know, he's teaching all of them what each one of them needed to know because he knew where they were going. And we cheat Thomas. I mean, what's his nickname? Yeah, right. He took the gospel geographically further than anyone in the entire group. Further than Peter ever went. Further than Paul. Records of Thomas went everywhere. He wasn't doubting. He just had to have something happen to release who he was. And the Lord knew how to do that. And I pray that God teaches me that how to talk to different people, you know, how to, how to shut up, and that's hard for me. But I've, as the older I get, the more I learn to be quiet at times, you know. When I first started, I just, I was after everyone. Do this, you need to do this. You got two empty bedrooms, what's wrong with you? I had that mentality, I still do. I think everyone should do it. I just don't think everyone will commit to it and will do it but I won't ever stop asking him for the money and resources. <laughs> you can do that for sure. But um, I mean, I, there's about 14 million Christians in Texas, close to 30,000 foster and orphans. And you add that up, it wouldn't take but a small percentage to get their act together, take these children in and love them and give them a family first instead of a no, oh, well, let's just give them a bed off the street somewhere. I think they need a family that'll take them places, go on vacations, take them to the parties, you know, not get a babysitter all the time. We do get babysitters when we have to and, and meetings that we can't take children to. Don't get me wrong. But as far as everyday activity, they go with us. We have them one, two, and three at a time and say, you know, look, it's just part of, the, part of the deal. They're our family. So I don't know, you know, why, why don't good... I mean, I, I was at that meeting, one of the speakers, and I won't mention his name because he said, stop rebuking me, but, uh, and I was lovingly doing it, but he said, what we want to do is realize that, you know, people our age, and he's 60 and I'm 62, he said, well, we can't take foster children in, but we could respite. Respite is relieving an adoptive or foster care family for a few hours or a few days to give them time to rest. I said, wrong. I said, I've kind of started trying to figure it out, and I will get a number. 
You, you mark my words. I'll get a number. How many retirees have empty bedrooms? Nice homes. I'm not talking just retired and barely surviving. I'm talking about, I wonder how many professional people retire and are doing pretty much nothing <laughs> and um, have three or four bedrooms and all they use them is at Christmas when all the kids and grandkids come home. And I'm going to figure out that number and start saying, okay, we'll get your respite help at Christmas when your grandkids come home, but you need to put a child in there. You need to be a parent to one of these kids, take them to church with you, show them what family is like, show them what success is like. I mean, I wonder how many foster children get in homes that have no real success. Would love to go into a home and be taught by someone who's retired from, let's say, investments, and be taught at age six, this is what it looks like if you challenge yourself. And they start wanting that, you know. I mean, they don't, no one gets anything either addiction related or success related without a taste. This is what it tastes like to be successful. Wouldn't it be great to expose children to success? So I'm going to figure out how many retirees have got some nice homes with empty bedrooms and probably have two homes, one in, on the beach down there at Padre or something and a home somewhere in Amarillo or Dallas, you know. I'm like, okay, you got like 16 bedrooms and there's no kids in them, you know, and you're a Christian. I'm sure God's going to be pleased with you one day and say, I had some kids on the street behind your house about four miles. <laughs> you weren't there for them. So I'm going to use the guilt tactic. And if these children don't get adopted before they're 18 years old, what they call aging out of the foster care system, they won't have a real family, a forever family, that they can call their own forever. They won't have a home for Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, all of the holidays. And more importantly, they won't have a shoulder to lean on in everyday life. They're the most troubled children on the planet, the ones that age out. Uh, that my heart breaks there as much as it does for a four-pound meth baby. The criminal justice system forecasts annually how many people will go to prison, and one of their top criteria is they look and see how many will age out of foster care because more than half go to prison within a year. They also have determined that female part of the foster care system, when they age out within a week, if they don't have family to go to or somewhere they can go or college or something or don't have a job or whatever, if they are pretty much on their own, they go into prostitution within a week. Sorrowful situation in LA and Phoenix with where a friend of mine, Kyle Bateman, who runs Phased In in Wichita Falls, trying to raise funds to get homes built for kids who age out. He was out there and ran into a lady that said they kept seeing a white van show up, drop kids off, where they were out trying to get food distributed to the homeless. And they kept saying, well, what's this white van? They said, well, it's the CPS office bringing the kids down here that age out with a bag of clothes. And they open the door, the kids get out and they drive away. Can you imagine having that job every day, leaving kids to fend for themselves like this? Well, you know, they get so caught up in this is all there is that they shut their mind off. They're just like a butcher, you know. That's why they 
In the early days, you couldn't serve on a jury if you were a butcher because you hard yourself to blood. And he said, what? So that's when he said, we've got to do something. So he came back to Texas. Surely it's not happening in Texas and found out there's really no place for him in Texas. A couple of makeshift type situations that get a little government support, but here we go. They really don't get help. Come on couples, come on families. Let's, let's get these children either adopted or adopt them. And what a story, Daryl Trout's story from Midland, Texas, and great job as always to Alex. And we love discovering parts of America, towns in America, and then we dig in. And lots of remarkable things are happening and lots of needs need to get met. And we're the ones to do it. And to make sure you do your part, or at least help, let Pastor Daryl Trout do his. Go to highsky.org to learn about the High Sky Children's Ranch in Midland, Texas. And by the way, if you're thinking about doing something like this in your own town or your own state, go visit him. We have this remarkable thing called franchising, and it works. And go there, learn from him, start something like this in your town with your church, with your civic organization. Get it done. This is Lee Habib, Daryl Trout's story. In a way, Midland, Texas is so many orphan kids and kids in need. Here on Our American Stories.